everybody, welcome to the Inverse Podcast. It's David Andrew here. We hope you're well. Today's guest is Scott Ludlam, and you're going to hear more about him in the beginning of the interview with Jared. Um, but before that happens, I just wanted to jump in and say a quick thank you to people who are our listeners and our fans, and especially those who are supporters of us on Patreon. It's a tremendous way in which we are supported in helping get this content out around uh, ways in which the Bible continues to invert our world, flip it on its head. If you want to check out our Patreon or want to consider becoming a supporter of the Inverse podcast, head over to patreon.com slash inverse. All right, let's jump on into the episode. Hey, Scotty. Um, so how do you want to be introed now? Just some guy. Just some guy who's Friend. currently working on a book um, who... Used to be. Do you do this former senator thing? No, no, not unless I'm forced into it. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's fair enough for people to know. But I was um, also saw somewhere you should never describe yourself as former anything. Mm. So I'm just a present writer and uh, someone that you have known. I was trying to work it out since 2002. Yeah, Pine Gap. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you remember of <laughs> going out to? Because that wasn't your first big hoo ha. Um, you're a few years older. Or just a couple um, than me. For you, it was kind of Jabaluka, right? Well, yes. Jabaluka was the first time I'd kind of voluntarily put myself into a campaign in a systematic way. I'd been to rallies and demonstrations and stuff before, not much. Jabaluka, which was a uranium mine that the government and the mining industry had determined would be the first new uranium mine open was the first campaign that I got involved in and dedicated significant time to. Mm. How old were you at the time? 28. Yeah, wow. Um, I was in high school, but the first time I actually saw your name and didn't connect it until uh, we went to Pine Gap with however many people were on the bus and with the support cars, was actually Ron Butler, uh, one of my best mates in high school, on the back of his toilet door, had the Earth Charter. Um, and your your name was down the bottom. And uh, as somebody for whom art was what I was good at, I was impressed by it. And um, then realising, oh, it's the same Scotty, like my new mate Scotty. But was I already Scotty? I don't think I've That's ever awesome. called you anything, anything but Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so just to be clear, because I don't know whether that document's still in circulation, but I was the designer, not the author. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. That was, I think, kind of a crowdsourced document that they invited me to do a presentation. And you were a graphic designer. That was your initial Back then training. I was freelancing. So I'd been working in small studios for the previous 10 years, nine years. But by the time I met you, actually, I was working for a state Greens MP hmm. and that was my annual leave, the, the Pine Gap trip. Um, Was that Robin? Yes, that's Robin Chappell, who's still in state parliament. Um, But Earth Charter days, I think, from being a couple of years before that was when I was still freelancing. Yeah, wow. There's so many different places I want to kind of um, trail down. But maybe before we do, uh, you've chosen a a passage in conversation. And um, are you you happy to to read it? Um, And then from there, we can keep asking questions do you want my translation or um your translation i thought uh even if you were um prepared that we might give a bit of the larger context and start at verse so it's matthew 6 verse 24 
and go down to 34. So you got 10 verses to... 24 to 34. Okay. Here we are. No one can serve two masters. We're starting there. Giddy up. Let's have that. Okay. <laughs> Tell me when to stop. This is the first time I've read a piece of scripture out loud since I was seven. Wow. All right. What country were you in at the time? South Africa. Let's come back to that in a bit. Let's start. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're in Matthew chapter six and we're starting on verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That seems pretty clear to me. <laughs> it's not so much of a gray area being expressed here. We, we do a lot of work to make that really gray. Shall I keep going? Yeah, please. 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? 27. When do you, when do you want me to go down to? Let's go to 34. All right, great. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If, this, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's rather elegant, isn't it? It's poetic. It's <laughs> Scotty, you mentioned being seven years old and in South Africa. You were born in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Yes. Um, but your folks uh, took you and your brother travelling and uh, you were exposed to a bunch of stuff that kids... Uh, sometimes read about and experience later in life, but as you were a young fellow, you got to see firsthand. What, what were you doing in South Africa? By the time I was seven, so my brother would have been five, we'd already done a slow lap around the planet and I'd, you know, through East and South Asia, Central Asia, Europe, a year in the United Kingdom, and then two years in South Africa. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a unique way to grow up. Um, and really valuable experiences for a young person to have had. On the podcast, we often talk about um, what eyes you see the text through. What experience do you think, or how do you think that changed, the, those experiences changed the way that you see the world at that age? When, when travel is just life, where you're somewhere different from day to day and from week to week, and that that's just what your childhood is and has been for as long as you can remember. I think it gives you a slightly different perspective that um, the kids that you meet along the way, you don't necessarily share language with, hmm. but you're still kids. Hmm. And so it's a, it's a curious way, I suppose, of recognising that we're all, we're all the same especially from like a four or five or six-year-old's eyes yeah. that kids everywhere are the same. You can, you can invent games as little people even if you can't communicate with each other and that's enough. 
Yeah. So I have vivid memories of um, now not so little Tyson, who's six foot five, uh, and him being uh, in Phnom Penh and playing with kids that they shared no language connection and all of them just laughing hysterically. Um, I think that impacts people in a big way. You talked about reading scripture at seven years old. What was the context for that? Well, this, the primary schools of the day, so this is late era apartheid. This is yeah, where of course. It's, it's starting to come apart at the seams but is still a very entrenched system huh. of, of racial apartheid that's been there for decades. And this, the, the state school that, that I was going to, state primary school that I was going to, had a scripture class as a part of its, as a part of the curriculum. And so that was my first contact with the Bible. And so I'm, I'm, this discussion now obviously is coming at you through 40 years of distance and stuff mm. that I've pieced together since then. But that was my first contact with religion. It hadn't been a part of my life up until then. In a context of apartheid South Africa where it was a way of reading the Bible that actually justified um, land theft, a colonial vision, uh, the subjugation of human beings based upon a white supremacist understanding of society all of that was that present like were you in the strongly yes yeah i'm not in a township school yeah i'm in a white middle class suburban school yeah in english or afrikaans in english they made us try they they tried to make us learn afrikaans i was terrible at it i've not been great with languages since but the 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 strongest recollection i have from that and i think perhaps one of the reasons we ended up leaving south africa was the way that scripture was being interpreted in that school was that you were you placed yourself under the protection of Jesus and he would protect you from the Kaffirs. He would protect you wow. from the blacks. You could drive through the townships with your window down. For some reason, this phrase has stuck with me. I dro- I'm, I'm able to drive through the townships with my window down and, I will, and the Lord will protect me because I'm a person of faith. And you're a seven-year-old kid that's just you taking that in unfiltered and uncritically. Yeah. And so that's the, that's the kind of language I'm bringing home and relaying back to my parents and I think it freaked them out some. Yeah, no kidding. And that kind of magical talisman kind of approach that, that faith is a, a, a spell that can protect some and not others, that that's good for some and not others. And, you know, at that age of development as well, it's why Harry Potter's so popular is that it does speak to a little kid's imagination, right? That Scotty and I are just talking about how powerful where we read scripture from is. And we started talking about South Africa, but you moved on to talk about Myanmar and those realities. Um, somebody for us who was a hero and I used to have a poster in my room that I took down, Aung San Suu Kyi, um, yeah, share a little about what you were saying. It was lending perspective as opposed to the conversation that we're having about interpretations of biblical texts by the powerful to suit their narrative, which mm. I know is something that you've practically made your life's work. Mm. And uh, I didn't understand, I suppose, how broad that was, and now I'm fascinated by the phenomenon that I... Um, eventually felt like if you could take Dharma, if you could take Buddhist teachings, which are intrinsically about love, peace, nonviolence, the 
transcendence of suffering and that be your lifetime of study and then still wind up as part of a militia that is committing a genocide that chases and burns a million people across a border into a neighbouring country, yeah. then there is no text that can't be twisted and misinterpreted. Yeah. So we need to find some other way, I suppose, of passing on teachings and guidance than simply writing it down and hoping hoping that the original intent will stay strong. Yeah. And I'm not sure why that made such a strong impression. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, you know that I'm not religious, right? Mm. But if you'd asked me 10 years ago, like, what's my strongest spiritual affinity, I would have said Buddhism because mm. it's surely that's incorruptible. You know, <laughs> they, they study and profess uh, avoidance of harm to all beings, mm. but they've burned a million people out of their towns and across the border, and they're still there. Mostly children. This is the tension that every Christian lives with, hopefully. Like, um, uh, is it the Christianity of the crucified one who was crucified by a collaboration of the religious, powerful and the largest empire of the day? Um, Or is it the Christianity of empire that um, uh, that's... I remember us chatting after you got back from... My ma, what year was that? When did you? I've been a couple of times. My first visit, I think, was in 2012. It was 2012, the time when I remember us chatting and you were talking about Parliament and experiencing Parliament there. And as somebody who has, uh, well, Dina Tali um, praised you um, as you were leaving for your um, humility and um, being quietly spoken in a place that those virtues aren't often exhibited. Um, and yet when you were in Myanmar, um, seeing a parliament where there was no argument, where there was no friction, whether um, talk to me about your reflections on that. It was a confounding experience. So I'd been, we'd been involved with the, um, the Burmese community in exile here in Perth around 2007 because it coincided with our election campaign was the Saffron Uprising, yeah. where, if you recall, there's television images of Buddhist monks being beaten and tear-gassed and huge crowds of supporters in the streets of the biggest cities in the country mm. being smashed by Burmese security apparatus for speaking out um, in defiance of the regime. We a couple of friends uh, then met up with a local community in exile here uh, or the diaspora community and they were organising rallies and demonstrations and we helped and it happened to, you know, be roughly coinciding with, with my first election campaign. Mm. And so uh, I made some very good friends through that. We stayed in contact and then once, once we were fortunate enough to win a Senate seat, I, um, I kept up the advocacy but just using that platform. So yeah. then you have all these avenues and levers um, of the parliament to continue working um, for democracy in that country. So uh, I've I continued uh, and have continued that association, but it's just it's followed this very peculiar arc, I guess you could say, from working with pro democracy campaigners to visiting Myanmar and meeting with NGOs, meeting with the ambassador, meeting with people who were sort of struggling to rebuild a shattered civil society that had been destroyed, to being uh, an election observer Mm. in 2015 
and then to visiting the world's largest refugee camp uh, at Cox's Bazaar last year, where the Rohingya, you know, entire Rohingya regions have been burned out of their homes. Um, and also having met on Sung Sushi in the, yeah. in the course of some of the lobbying work that we were doing. Visiting their parliament, which I think was in about 2012, I was very... Can I ask about that? What, how did you experience her personally? Forceful. Forceful. Yeah, there right. no bullshit. Uh, yeah. This was before the genocide had started. She'd only just basically worked out how to manoeuvre herself and her party into a position where they, they, they don't have control of the parliament by any means, but they were on their way, given the, the huge wedge of seats the military still reserves for itself. But at that point, um, she was one of the few figures who, in an Australian context, inspired, uh, um, she'd inspired people across political lines here. Mm. Foreign Minister Julie Bishop at the time had a long-standing association with her. There were some very senior Labor figures. It wasn't controversial in Australia at that time to be pro-democracy in Burma. And uh, Dao Su had won a Nobel Prize. She was quite iconic yeah and um so i was able to visit her uh, able to visit the parliament and i think was probably one of the first um the first foreigners who who'd um who'd been up into their public gallery to look down on their debates and um there's all these these activists and people who've been risking their lives who who've lost friends and family to this regime sitting next to a quarter of their parliament in uniform, in army uniforms, debating snake bites in villages and debating something that they had clearly was going to sink them in a debate for a couple of days. And it hit me quite hard. Firstly, that no local people were allowed in the public gallery. Mm. So I'm exercising this weird form of privilege in their country. Uh, even just my presence there, mm. but also that the parliament had then captured these radicals and now they're sitting down there debating something for days. They're not organisers anymore. They're, they're stuck, they're sunk in a debate now about something that probably wasn't even on their agenda before they came in. And um, it, it knocked the wind out of me a little bit, Yeah, thinking about my own role, whether parliaments, did what, to what degree a parliament's just a shock absorber for truly radical aspirations. Yeah. Easy to point the finger in somebody else's country, but did cause a measure of introspection. And even those experiences as a kid being in a different context, it's kind of the gift of travel is that um, you come back to the same place, not the same, with different eyes and are able to see the same dynamics. Um, My own politics were deeply um, challenged by living in the US and... uh, uh, in my, uh, at 20 years old, I would have described as a Christian anarchist and then um, living in East Nashville, where at the time it wasn't all um, fixie hipsters and coffee shops. It, I was one or two white people within eight blocks living with Carl Meyer, who um, worked with Thich Nhat Hanh and Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King. And um, I realised that my anarchism uh, wasn't that much help to people who didn't have health care and uh, where there weren't gun laws. and But that kind of um, uh, radical politics, um, uh, the quoting of Kropotkin, and uh, that's been something of the circles we were initially um, in. Uh, but the West Australian environmental movement did engage. What was it like holding those tensions, like um, of 
to to be in the system, uh, to have a radical critique of the system, and to try and to not replicate on a smaller scale what you saw in Burma and Myanmar. Or I think all, all I can say is that I've had the best teachers. So any lapses are purely failures on my part. <clears throat> Joe Valentine was mm. a former senator. She was elected to the Nuclear Disarmament Party in Western Australia in 1984. First was, person on that platform worldwide. She was the first disarmament campaigner elected solely on a platform of nuclear weapons abolition yep. in any parliament in the world. She was arrested multiple times while she was in office mm. for trespassing on military bases that provide guidance capabilities for nuclear weapons here in Australia. And so my favourite teachers in this movement were ones who were activist legislators. Yeah. So we're going to occupy this building. We'll use the tools. We'll recognise that people have died to mm. bring us these capabilities, as limited and brittle as they are, but we won't ever lose sight of the fact that this is just one piece of the puzzle. This is one domain in which social change can come mm. or be blocked. And actually the real work is on the outside of that building. In terms of the WA history, before we jump into the text, um, I'm aware that it was four incredible women, one of whom, Joe Val, was a, a mentor um, uh, for me as well, uh, but two of whom are people of quite deep faith, um, Christabel as a, an Anglican, Joe as a, a Quaker. Um, how do you think uh, people that do have a, a deep spiritual commitment and intention have changed some of the activist scene that we're a product of here in WA? Because would you agree that it's quite distinct nationwide? I think the organising culture is different everywhere, but in Western Australia, so just to speak from my experience, the movement that I came into in the late 1990s was strongly mentored by people like Joe who created training spaces that were infused with a Quaker ethic mm. and a Buddhist ethic, mm. or including their models for change, yep. so teaching models and also their, their, their worldviews of how change is made in the world. So we would go to training events that, on the one hand, they're very practical, how to be arrested, how mm. to stay safe in the middle of collision of mm. police and contractors and campaigners, and also how to maintain some kind of spiritual balance in the middle of that, how to maintain yourself for the very long term yeah. so that you're not a burnout case. And so they're, they're drawing on very deep Quaker and Buddhist traditions and fusing it together with um, not radical leftist politics. If anything, it's, it's, it's probably closer to, to true anarchism, but it's mm. almost you can, you can leave some of your political traditions at the door. We're going to teach you how to engage in certain kinds of confrontation with state power, but we're also going to try and help you stay human yeah. as you're doing it. So, Scotty, as we, like, turn to this text, um, as someone, how would you identify spiritually? I don't think I really do. Hmm. So I feel like I've gone through several phases in my life of being attracted to, at different times, to old-school paganism, mm. to Buddhism, mm -hmm. to Taoism mm -hmm. as a kind of sub-discipline or a branch of Buddhism or a form of Buddhism mm. and found 
some gifts there in all of it. I find some gifts and some really valuable ideas even in this text that we're working through today. Mm. But I don't feel I have any sort of orthodox um, spiritual practice. Yeah. I remember as um, we were on the bus going over that red dirt on our way to Pine Gap, uh, I was reading Thomas Merton and so I was like, this was October 2002, I'm 21 years old. Um, you were reading The Art of War. True. You have yep. such a good memory. Okay. It's, it's, people get scared when they remember what I can, <laughs> what, yep. what I actually retain. I'm like, a bit concerned. Well, Jared used that against me. The, yeah. Um, okay, true. Uh, that text has continued to be an important kind of conversation piece as you've reinterpreted it for yourself. Talk to me about that a little. Well, it's a Taoist military text yeah. from a, the end of a period called the Warring States period in China where they had been slaughtering each other for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. And nobody knows really who the author is or if it was transcribed by somebody in a slightly later period, but it's a, it's a military doctrine that emphasises least harm and, I mean, it's it ends up transcribed into broken English. I can't imagine how elegant it is in the mm. original script, but it's, um, you know, one of the phrases that sort of floats through it and above it is, is the best kind of conflict is the one that you didn't have. The best kind of yeah. war is the one that you were able to not avoid, but the one that you were able to resolve without bloodshed. So clearly the authorship is by people who are very, very practised in generalship. It's mm. not a a flaky or a hippie or a flowery text it involves burning people and spies and armies in contention but it's also about how to resolve conflict by welcoming it and by resolving it uh through means that involve that 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 invoke the least amount of destruction yeah and of course that has been picked up in the 20th century as a and it's ended up in business management classes it's ended up in um, in US military doctrine and it's been kind of absorbed and interpreted in various forms of different ways, I came across A it, bit like the Bible. <laughs> a bit like the Bible and probably turned to, to malicious ends, no question mm. at all. But if you, if you go back to the original intention, as far as I am aware, it's, it's a text that says life is full of conflict mm. and there are ways of, of meeting it that are more evolved than hacking each other to pieces, which is inevitably very destructive for everybody. So I found it valuable. Um, it's a while since I've revisited it, but I, I found it valuable as, a, as an activist text. So yeah. we're invoking and inviting a form of confrontation and conflict. Yep. And so we are welcoming that in a sense. We're not stepping back from it. Yeah. How, how can we meet that conflict that we're helping to invoke in a way that is not destructive? Yeah, totally. Um, what Martin Luther King called a, a creative conflict. Um, and that's helpful even in terms of grounding this passage because sometimes uh, Matthew 6 can be heard as a little bit of uh, nature mysticism, a romanticised kind of, uh, for those who like spending time uh, in the forest. Um, uh, but this is coming from the mouth of someone who's grown up um, uh, in, in a town not far from within four years of Jesus' birth, um, there would have been over 2,000 people uh, crucified along the roadside where his um, uh, 
stepdad Joseph would have gone to this town for work as a as a builder, a, a carpenter. He's not making tables and chairs. He's he's making um, uh, buildings. Like um, this, that kind of bloodshed, that kind of suffering, um, that kind of uh, constant um, recycling of revolutionaries meeting uh, an end of um, uh, capital punishment by the occupying forces. Uh, and in the midst of that, Jesus starts talking about don't worry, which seems odd. What, what are your initial thoughts or what does this text evoke from you? What kind of things come up for you? I didn't read it as a don't worry, be happy kind of message. <laughs> it's quite like this is quite a, and again, I, I, my, my appreciation of scripture is absolutely superficial, right? Like I haven't read this material since I was seven and I'm glad mm. to be reinvited back into it. But this feels like quite a political tract. Yes. This is quite a political piece of work. Yeah. Where we started, you cannot be the slave of two masters. You will like one more than the other or be more loyal to one than the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So he's kind of really just laying it down. Yeah. Um, the don't worry, the don't worry part is more, I find this quite lyrical. This he's reminding us about cycles of the biosphere. We're being reminded here about the depth of the, um, the depth of, of the degree to which natural systems hold all beings in them. This has kind of, um, ecologist resonance or Buddhist resonance. Yeah. He's saying don't worry about superficial stuff. Yeah. The earth takes care of everything from a blade of grass to a human being. Just yes. chill the fuck out. Yeah. Be yourself, Scotty. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it's not, a don't, it's not a don't worry about injustice in the world. It's like try and pay attention to the stuff that's deep and that matters. Yeah. That was my take on it anyway. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, and it's, it's some of the subtle things that um, those kind of not steeped in the Jewish text might miss, like that Solomon is, um, uh, after King David, Solomon is the most celebrated king of these people who, for whom um, their God did not want them to have a king. Solomon becomes a slave trader, an arms dealer in places like uh, Abednego, which we get the word Armageddon, which is the plain um, where uh, different parts of Northern Africa, um, the, the Middle East met together and empires clashed on these plains. Solomon does all the things that actually mirror the other nations, which uh, in terms of the Jewish narrative, they were called out of slavery and told, don't be like the other nations. Uh, I have a vision for you, which is actually good for all of creation where you're blessed to be a blessing, uh, not for the exploitation of others. And so King Solomon builds a temple to the God who hears the cries of slaves using slavery. And so it's the, the subtlety of um, your experience of in Myanmar and, and seeing um, a, a Buddhism which has been subverted to actually prop up the systems instead of inverse the systems, um, that this text is speaking directly to Solomon in all his splendor was not dressed like one of these. Um, and I loved how you put it in terms of like from a blade of grass um, to the human being. Um, would you talk a little bit more in your maiden speech, you, you talked about um, uh, scrapping the word consumers from 
uh, our vocabularies and again becoming citizens. And you also talked about it's probably my favourite Scotty quote ever: um, the the nature of our economic systems being like cancer. What does it look like an an economy that trusts like the birds of the air or the lilies of the field versus economies like the Roman Empire or um, the Jewish people's imitation of other empires at the time. Will you spell some of that out for us, like the contrast between those different kind of economic visions? The, I know that the cancer reference is chancy and possibly offensive. It comes, to me, it comes from, from two places. It was Edward Abbey who said the ideology of endless growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. Huh. But I was also profoundly affected by an essay I read by a guy called John McMurtry years and years ago called The Cancer Stage of Capitalism, wow. which uh, the essay does what it says on the lip. It's a, it's a critique of neoliberal forms of capitalism in particular, which is a system dedicated to converting living systems into money. Yeah. It's not really an economy in the true sense of the word. It's departed and divorced and it's now this vast parasitic structure perched on the productive economy, consuming it and converting life into money. Hmm. And its only purpose is to grow. And so he's drawn the reference to what a cancer does inside your body. Hmm. Its only imperative is growth until you're dead. Yeah. Um, so it's quite a full-on way to reference a political construct um, and what, what flows from an economic system that is doing that is that human beings, and Marx spotted this 150 years ago, human mm. beings end up as commodities. Yeah. Everything ends up as a commodity. Mm. Care ends up as a commodity. Yeah. Living systems are commodified and any that can't be commodified are just used as dumping grounds. If they can't find some value that can be stripped from them, then that's probably a suitable place for a radioactive waste dump. Mm. And the idea that, human beings are then commodified isn't simply our role as as wage laborers or as kind of sketchy participants in the gig economy hanging on by our fingernails mm -hmm. it's not just that we have to work for fear of falling into starvation and poverty it's that our our other role in this thing is to consume as though our lives depend on it so our yeah. psychology is being warped by 60 years of, of expertise in advertising and marketing and child psychology to be desperate to consume yes. as, a, as a reference point for our value as human beings. Yeah. And I'm not sitting outside this system critiquing it. I'm a part of it. We're all a part of it. We're born into it. So, and nothing is immune this book has been commodified yeah. and turned to terrifying ends under yeah. late capitalism as well. Yeah. Um, as so you, the, the as Bible well that aware. I'm like to make it real concrete, the Bible that um, I have with me today is uh, published uh, by Zondervan. Zondervan is now owned by Rupert Murdoch. That's how concrete like. <laughs> so it's all been drawn into this thing which still parts of it still resemble an economy but i don't i don't think of it as an economy anymore it's something yeah. quite different and we're at this kind of crunch point now where i think 
the very real prospect of collapse or the fact that it's already begun. Collapse isn't something that we worry about being 10 or 20 years away. Mm. If you're on the east coast of Africa, still unable to recover from a hurricane that hit you two months ago, then it's not some abstract future emergency that's bearing down. This is hitting people now. So uh, that's why we're discussing this passage, I guess. Yeah, and... The reality is that um, fundamentalisms, uh, whether they be economic or religious, are particularly appealing as this trauma hits us and we don't know what to do with them. The, the safety of the ever-expanding Roman Empire, despite the fact it's a suicidal system, um, uh, which it's ecological damage that it caused right across uh, the spectrum, um, is again being mirrored. And I'm aware that like, uh, as Europe reached those limits, um, it then needed to find other places to continue that type of growth. And then the white supremacist settler colonialism projects were launched in uh, the North America, uh, South America, um, here on this continent, which um, uh, we now live. In terms of connecting the the dots between these kind of texts, are, are there other things that stand out to you or you have questions um, that arise from these kind of texts or? Well, there's the, there's the thing that, um, that we were talking before about our father in heaven, which to me is always amounted to an old patriarch sitting up in the sky with some yeah. robes, maybe with some light around him. And um, I don't know whether that. Yeah, let's, let's talk to. I I suppose this is the part that that I find the most alienating and so I'm not going to blame everything on on my South African experience as a child because Mm. um, there's plenty of ways of coming back to faith if that's your first first contact with it. There's any number of ways, but I suppose that one of the things that's always um, bothered me a, a little bit is that it's so clearly for my entire life been married to power. It's Mm. this textbook and seeing this with the present occupant of the prime minister's office in this country Uh is using what I later had to find out is a deeply radical piece of work written about an anti-poverty campaigner Mm. and an (laughs) anti-imperialist who appears barefoot to be challenging the greatest empire that the world had ever seen at the time. Yeah. This um, same book is apparently now in service to somebody who's actively using it to hurt people. He's yeah. actively using it as a political tool of division in a community that desperately needs precisely the opposite. Mm-hmm. So I guess that has kept me away. And the only thing that has kept me in the room actually has been you and your work, like having direct contact with you mm-hmm. and the kind of people that you work with yeah. has reminded me that actually this is, this is a story of a deeply radicalized individual who said you cannot serve both God and money. Yeah. Yeah. And the nature of that mammon um, and how it limits our imagination. uh, For years, your emails used to end with a quote from one of your favorite science fiction authors, uh, William Gibson. Um, The the quote is, um, uh, the future is here. It's just, let me see if I get it right. It's just not well distributed yet. More or less right. Yeah. And you do have a photographic memory. I've forgotten. <laughs> the future is already here. It's not 
evenly distributed yet, which I still think is quite a perceptive way of thinking about. It's beautiful. And it's very hard to understand the Jesus story without understanding that his challenge is um, not some abstract spiritual teachings, uh, but a political vision that says that um, tomorrow is today for those who want to live into it, but it'll lead to a cross. And so his invitation is to, to take up a cross and follow into th- this nonviolent way of being that is very realistic about how it will end, like it did for him. Um, and that future, which he refers to in this passage as, as the kingdom of God, uh, that vision of not elsewhere, but on earth as it is in heaven, as the Jesus's prayer talks about, um, is a direct challenge to everything that I find so hard not to be trapped in, um, an imagination that says we're going to tweak what is costing us the earth at the expense of the poor and try and do a more compassionate version of what uh, is killing us all. How do you get this text back out of a place like the Prime Minister's office or corporations that are simply using it as a form of predatory marketing, as far as I can tell? Yep. How do you get it back? Yeah, for me, Scotty, what was at the heart of the Christian tradition is not um, how to be right, but how to confess we're wrong, which is... um, uh, like the, there's, there's an old African-American um, spiritual, uh, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the answer is yes, I was crucifying him. But the, <laughs> the, um, the Christian journey starts with the realisation that we're not, quote-unquote, the good guys um, trying to save everything. But in fact, um, we're not to save everything. We're, we're not the solution. We're actually the problem. And and I, f- I feel personally named in this. I'm really <laughs> glad I asked you this. No, I'm, I'm talking I about seen. me. <laughs> uh, your point is this is all of us, right? It well, was. this is, and this is why, like, in terms of just a little um, uh, way on, Jesus, like, directly says, um, uh, like, this is the next bit from where you finish reading. Uh, Do not judge or you will be judged. For the same measure that you judge others, you will be judged by. And with the same measure um, you use will be measured against you. Why do you look for the speck of sawdust in your sister or brother's eye and not see the log in your own eye? First remove the log from your own eye and then you'll be of help to your sister or brother. These teachings are directly connected, but I actually think it takes the context of um, risking being involved that despite the fact we're part of the problem, um, that there is an announcement of a new future um, that weirdly Christians insist comes from uh, a form of power that is seen in the cross, not a glorification of suffering, but a willingness um, to suffer, um, to end the suffering of others, um, uh, uh, trusting in a power which death knows nothing about, um, trusting in a power which um, uh, even if they kill us, still something else will rise on, on the other side of that. That goes to the heart of the practicalities, but the the reality is, Scotty, that um, uh, these kind of teachings of Jesus are the ones that um, I'm so keen to avoid. I see those patterns in myself um, because of what they they cost. So a Christianity that um, says Jesus saves, um, but not in any practical sense, is a really helpful way to actually continue to participate in the crucifixion of the poor and the earth. 
I'm very glad I asked that question. Oh, I'm I'm glad we're exploring this stuff. You asked about Heavenly Father and that kind of language. Um, is it worth speaking to that a little? Well, let's speak to that. Um, the text is written, like I suppose nearly everything else from its day, as he and his and him, and there don't appear to be any women in this bit. Hmm. And the person that we're looking up to is quite clearly a patriarch. He's a guy and he's up there. Yeah. Uh, judging us. Oh, in terms of um, talking about the reality of God and that. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I suppose that's something that's remained a little alien to me. The God is personified so that. Yeah. Um, I, like I discovered science and cosmology as a teenager and kind of yeah. went back. My earliest memories are of moon landings because the last couple oh. were still underway, actually. So I'm like two or three years old. And wow. I've been fascinated, as many kids are, by astronomy and cosmology from the very beginning. So the idea that there's some dude up there in some kind of high orbit looking down on this particular place <laughs> feels a little at odds with any sort of literal interpretation of what's going on here. Totally. Uh, but I don't think a literal translation or interpretation is super helpful. Yeah, and one of the things that is helpful in terms of um, this vision that Jesus is articulating, um, the the kingdom of God, the restoration of all things, um, the healing of all of uh, reality, that um, in the patriarchal uh, worldviews of the day, um, father is a term that's reserved we're talking about economies and it comes from the Greek word oikos, meaning household. And clearly the household at the time, both in the Greco-Roman um, and then the Jewish imagination, had a male literal patriarch. That um, And part of Jesus's subversion that uh, feminists and womanist scholars have been so keen to point out, but um, uh, ancient scholars have said is part of the early church witness as well, is that Jesus using this language um, is actually a subversion of patriarchy. Uh, so Jesus says things like, call no man father. Um, uh, Jesus asked um, about his family and says, um, those uh, who do the will of my father are the ones who are my family, i.e. Um, those who are getting on with the desires of this future and living it today, that's what actually binds me. Like um, the... The language of father, um, psychologically, they talk about that um, an infant can't differentiate between a, a mother and itself, and often it's um, the male in a traditional uh, culture is the first other that's encountered. And so the word for father that's actually used in um, the Aramaic, which is Jesus' first language, even though this is a, a Greek text translated into English, um, is from the word Abram, um, which means father, and it's but the word Jesus uses is Abba, which is actually Dada. It, it's literally how a baby would say what they would call the dad. Um, and so this language is actually taking uh, that which is a final authority, applying it to no one in the social structure, and saying there is a reality that transcends that, and all the subversions that like the amount of time that Jesus uses feminine imagery for this reality and yet still uses this language of intimacy of Abba to describe it. Um, it's radically queer. Like it, it, it's, um, it subverts all the uh, assumptions that come along as a, as a Jewish man, there's 
the personification of God is scandalous. God is a mystery that can't be named or known other than God's actions to liberate. Um, so the question is, does Christianity actually move that backwards? And there is no doubt that these subversions have been subverted to actually prop up what Jesus tears down. And I think some of the work for um, those like me for whom these texts are dear is to make that explicit so um, uh, we can rescue people from, you know, from what the cosmonauts talked about when they got out there and they said there is no God because we're up here and, like, there's, that's, that's not what's going on in the text at the time. But it's a really good because it is so put off-putting for so many people. Like that, yeah, it's it's off-putting, and that it ended up becoming a tool of political political patriarchies that's done extraordinary violence to women and to yeah. um, LGBTI people right yeah. up until the present moment. That's right. So it's big work getting the intention back into radical hands. And even terms like the kingdom of God is exactly the same, like a kingdom. Oh, so this is a support of, as um, one radical anarchist in Western Australia, uh, Ma used to joke with me, oh, so you're a cosmic monarch. Um, <laughs> right. You put, the, you put the crown one head higher, but we're still bowing down to some kingdom. Yep. And presumably paying him a lot of tax. <laughs> And the subversion of that is what it is to claim a kind of king, um, which is what Messiah means or Christ means, uh, that's power is seen and is like enthroned on a cross. If you don't get the punchline of um, here's your crown, uh, it's not gold, it's actually thorns. It's been murdered it's by state. The state, that's right. And um, uh, Christianity um, doesn't, merely say, hey, there's a different kind of power, the power of love to hold intention with the love of power. It says to, to contemplate the cross is to say that there is no power other than that of the particular suffering love that doesn't glorify suffering, but to end the suffering of others is willing to suffer out of a commitment to nonviolence because it is the nature of the divine and it is in whom's image we are made. So do you think that if a state can co-opt an intention as radical and subversive as that and turn it into its diametric opposite, hmm. that nothing, nothing is impervious then? Well, you just look at greenwashing and even some of the tensions that you're talking about um, uh, being part of a political party whose uh, roots is in um, those who you know, whether it's um, Franklin or here in Western Australia, old growth forests or the anti-nuke movement and some of the tensions of uh, how attractive um, the, the pool of coercive power for a greater good is and what it is to, to say same and to have a clear vision and to stay grounded. How did you do that in the midst? Because famously where so much uh, po political fashions are reduced to um, tweets, one-liners, sp spin. Um, you had a speech where it was old-school, like, reasoned, argued rhetoric and inviting people into something other than that that was viewed by over a million people in a nation of, what are we, 22 million or something, Australia? 
to be honest, there's, you know, there's videos of puppies doing cute things that have been <laughs> 500 times more than that. <laughs> However, um, uh, oh, it's, it's going to come full circle a little bit, but like the, uh, all I can do, I suppose, is just give reference to the people that like when I first came into doing political work as somebody who'd been a commercial artist up until then and had not known what to do, like deeply not a radical person or any somebody with any sort of politics at all, actually. Because mm. um, you weren't involved in student politics or... No, opposite. Yeah. Yeah, very, <laughs> very not. And, um, you know, that's on me that it took, it took such a long time for me to, to, to even begin to figure things out. And it's obviously a process that still has a way to go. Um, is that we were well mentored. We had good teachers. Mm. It's um, Western Australian justice and environmental and land rights movements mm. have been held here, as I think you observed before, by strong women, including women of faith from different traditions. And it's, uh, it's something that we have to make sure that we continue. And I sort of, I've seen it in action this week, actually. There's a very strong and radical tradition of... Um, in quite a conservative environment, as you know, you've yeah. lived here most of your life as well. This is quite a conservative place to be trying to confront the mining industry, totally. or forestry interests, or yep. whoever else. And the training and mentoring and teaching that I got was it's like, yes, here's the practical hands-on stuff. Here's our analysis of how power operates and what it will try and do to us, but also mostly in the middle of it, stay human because we are going to need you for the long haul. Hmm. Nobody's interested in a, in a burnout case, hmm. either for your own well-being or for what it advertises about the work that we're trying to do here. Yeah. So that um, I've tried to do justice to that hmm. kind of tradition of teaching. And, yeah, it's people like Joe Valentine hmm. and Brenda Roy. Yes. And, you know, like folk who've been at this for a while and have seen... Uh, probably lost count of the waves of new energy that flows in. We're in the middle of another one right at the moment. I was yeah. in action this week yeah. of people who have been brought into a movement who are having a political awakening right in front of our eyes and who are being yeah. met with people who've been at this for a while and have managed to sustain themselves. Yeah. It's kind of, a, it's a wonderful thing. And without giving too much away, I knew a number of the police officers um, involved, uh, that while we were there on Friday and uh, because I know a number of them, I'm safe to maybe share this and people not know who it comes from, but somebody texting saying, I, I knew I'm on the wrong side of this. I knew where I wanted to be, but I'm putting food on the table. And there's so few actions. And I, I realise how incredibly complicated all of that is, right? Like um, we're in a state where... Uh, Miss Do and Mr. Ward, um, the realities of what we experienced when we were strip search and we had a corruption and crime commission look into it and then spend over a million dollars making adjustments. And the reality is because uh, we were white, we were middle class and we were clergy. And so all of that put enough pressure when um, who's uh, filling up our uh, prison system um, and people are making money off it in this state. Uh, disproportionately people of colour and First Nations people in particular. And yet the, the, the vision of what happened on Friday in the Extinction Rebellion 
embodied something which meant that those who were on the other side wanted in. There are so few activist spaces where it has um, that kind of capacity and I, I, I know the tensions and um, if somebody wasn't saying the other half the argument, I would be. But I'm still so glad that there is that space to invite people in. Scotty, in terms of inviting people in, um, those who are listening and are like, I want to get involved, what's my next step? Um, uh, or even um, I'm wanting to um, follow along as you continue to journey with all this stuff. Because a lot of people retire from politics and um, go and make a lot of money. You go and get arrested. I seem to have found a way to do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been so broke in my entire life. <laughs> so I I came across um, a couple of years ago a very dear friend and colleague, Chantal, blue-tacked this thing up on the wall. It's a Japanese construct or a word which is ikigai, hmm. which um, translates roughly as, as sort of as a reason for being con- concept, but it's composed of of four domains of... Um, what are you good at? What do you love to do? Hmm. What can you be paid or supported to do? And what does the world need? Hmm. And at the intersection of those four things, you'll find a place that means you're happy hmm. and giving service. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so this is this is probably just a you know doing great harm in translation to the concept, but I really I really loved it, and I thought about I've thought about it quite a bit that if you've got all those four covered, then you're probably able to hold in, you know, hang in for the long term. And your ikigai will shift during your life, and mine certainly has. Hmm. It's not a static idea. It's, it's, um, it moves around. But for people who might have witnessed what, what we were calling the Spring Rebellion, which is this surge that has unfolded around the world over the last 10 days or so, is only a piece of what's happening. Yeah. It's a... It's part of um, this political, this global political pressure, I think, that's been building for a long time. In some parts of the world, it's been building for 500 years. Hmm. In Western Australia, it's been building since 1829. Hmm. And yeah, which is a useful reflection for me or for others who are stumbling through this process of decolonizing and kind of throwing this historical amnesia off is that we are 200 years late to this fight. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, uh, and that's quite confronting partly because the Extinction Rebellion organizing DNA was written in London. Yeah. You know, so, which is the source code for a lot of the destruction and, and, and damage that's been visited on people here. That DNA is having to be rewritten and shifted. I think it's a really valuable organising model, but mm. it wasn't written with a colonised landscape in mind. And yep. so there's work being done there. And in the meantime, there's people who are confronting these issues and finding their political awakening is happening in real time and they're making all the same mistakes that have been made by everybody who's ever stumbled into this mm. work by choice. There was an Aboriginal woman who spoke at the event who yeah. said, "We were, I'm born into politics. I didn't get to choose, choose this. Yeah. I'm born into it, into this collision. Um, whereas for somebody like me, I had this luxury of choice. Mm. I got to do the reading and decide on an issue that I wanted to work on, mm. and that is vastly different 
to mm. some people's experience coming into this. So the idea, though, of creating a spectacle and a confrontation, albeit a nonviolent one, but a spectacular confrontation, or the beginnings of one, the foreshadowing of a bigger confrontation to mm. come, is as a one of the purposes of creating that moment is as an invitation to other people. Hmm. If you're one degree of separation away from what happened this week, view this as an invitation. Yeah, that's great. Not to sign up to a doctrine that somebody else wrote, but to bring your ikigai, to bring your reason, hmm. to bring the talents and the passions that you've got and the connections and the community connections that you have that nobody else has. Hmm. This movement needs you because you're not already here. Yeah. And so it's first and foremost, it's an invitation to bring what you have to it, but also to learn from people who have been at this struggle for hundreds of years. Yes. Even though some of us might be hearing that for the first time. That's so good. Hey, as we finish, um, for those who are listening um, that will listen or read to uh, these sacred texts that are open in front of us, um, today, tomorrow, this week, this month, what would you hope that they keep in the forefront of their mind as they read? Um, what, what things in this moment of history do you think can't be forgotten uh, by, by people a, as they seek spiritual integrity at the moment? It feels a little arrogant to even say because this isn't my tradition, but, and I've, I've learned... Um, Obviously, even in the course of this conversation, I've learned a great deal. But the reason that I agreed to to even have this conversation is that I I um, trust your interpretation more than the interpretation of my primary school teachers in Johannesburg. That this is a text written yeah. about a radical. This is a text written about a, an individual who was an anti-poverty campaigner confronting mm. empire mm. using tools no more sophistication uh, sophisticated than love and forgiveness but also setting up confrontation yeah and not walking backwards from them yeah and empire owns empire believes it owns this text we yep. have a modern empire now that is that has this text sitting next to it yeah in in the highest offices on the planet literally yeah and um Taking it back, you put it way more elegantly than I would ever be able to, but um, keeping, in, keeping in mind, I suppose, in the collective memory of who this was written about, <laughs> what, his purpose, what his purpose was, why yeah. was this written down in the first place, um, as I guess any, any sacred tradition, mm. as far as I'm aware, has its origins in, um, in a radical vision of justice is to take it back. Yeah. It's great, Scotty. They haven't earned it. Yeah. And they sure as hell don't deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> so if nothing else, encouragement from Scotty to uh, take it back in a way that does Jesus justice or maybe even Jesus-like justice. Scotty, I love you. Thanks heaps for who you are, what you do, how you do it, how funny you are. Um, thanks.